0: Welcome, listeners, and thanks for stopping by. If you find yourself right now driving at night on a lonely or isolated road or highway, might I suggest you wait until you get home before listening to this episode? That is, unless you enjoy being frightened. If so, just be sure to keep your eyes open for any unusual lights in the sky. In either case, In this episode we're looking into the UFO event that started it all when it comes to accounts of alien abduction. What happened shocked the world and introduced mid-century Americans to the possibility of alien abduction. And not the kind of friendly encounters that had previously been the norm in such contact stories. No, this is definitely not a heartwarming ET story. In September of 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving from Montreal, Canada to Portsmouth, New Hampshire on the way home from their belated honeymoon. While driving through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the couple experienced an extraterrestrial phenomenon that would launch them into the international spotlight and help shape the dialogue around future supernatural encounters. The Hills claimed to have been kidnapped by extraterrestrials that night, 60 years ago, on September 19, 1961. According to government reports, they didn't just spot a flying saucer. They said its alien occupants took them aboard and subjected them to medical experiments. The couple described traumatic events, not at first in their testimony to military and civilian authorities, but later after haunting nightmares and months of hypnosis their story was so bizarre that it dominates our concept of alien abductions in movies tv shows and books even today their story whether you believe it or not went on to shape the perception of extraterrestrials and popular culture not to carry it over too far but they were kind of the adam and eve of alien abduction says Bill Ross, a professor emeritus at the University of New Hampshire, who is responsible for curating the school's extensive collection on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Ross says, they went public basically to try to own their story because they were thrust into the limelight without their permission. The fascination remains, and my fascination is just with the impact that their story had, says Ross. Ross says he's a skeptic himself but there are a lot of believers out there. The 1961 abduction of the Hills stirred worldwide interest and enthralled the public and media for decades. The case is mentioned in almost all UFO abduction books. The account fits squarely in the western narrative tradition. With a dark night, ghostly apparitions and sexual undercurrent, it had many Victorian Gothic hallmarks, and it shared the common Western folklore theme of being spirited off and ravished by an otherworldly creature. In the Hill's account, these traditional elements were transplanted to a modern but no less anxious time, the height of the Cold War, when many people gazed nervously skyward. It's not unlike the Leda and the Swan myth, said Terry Matheson, a professor of English at the University of Saskatchewan and the author of the 1998 book alien abductions, creating a modern phenomenon. The alien comes in, probes women in a distinctly sexual way for purposes that are equally inscrutable, but which may, we're told, make sense down the road. The Hills lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Betty and Barney both worked long hours in Portsmouth. Barney was employed by the United States Postal Service, while Betty was a social worker who handled child welfare cases. Barney often had to drive 60 miles a day and work the night shift. In addition to their full-time jobs, the couple also volunteered frequently. Active in the local Unitarian congregation, the Hills were also members of the NAACP and community leaders, and Barney sat on a local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. They were an interracial couple at a time when it was particularly uncommon in the United States. Barney was black, and Betty was white. As an interracial couple, before those unions were fully accepted, the Hills were passionate about advancing the civil rights movement. At the time, 22 states still considered interracial marriage as illegal. It wouldn't be until 1967 that the landmark U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Loving v. Virginia overturned such laws, making interracial marriage legal nationwide. The Hills' road trip was spontaneous, a well-earned break Barney decided the couple needed. As explained in The Interrupted Journey, a 1966 book they collaborated on with author John C. Fuller. The little free time the couple had was devoted to their church and activities related to the civil rights movement. After 16 months of marriage, Betty and Barney saw this trip through Montreal and Niagara Falls as their delayed honeymoon. They left so impulsively they had no time to even go to the bank before it closed for the weekend. They got in their car with less than $70 in their pockets. On the last night of their three-day trip, the tired couple sipped coffee in a Vermont diner to recharge before driving back. Barney figured if they pushed through, they could beat the wind and rains from an approaching hurricane. They left the diner around 10 p.m., estimating they could reach their red-framed house in Portsmouth between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. at the latest. They would experience something they could never have imagined, something they never wanted to happen to them. The four to five hour expected travel time would become seven hours. They would not be able to account for the two missing hours. That final drive home would change the rest of their lives, both personally and as a couple. It would deeply affect how the world viewed alien encounters. Its ripple effect would elevate the cause for hypnosis as a therapeutic tool. But most of all. It would drag alien abductions out into the light of day, giving support and reassurance to others who had experienced such events that they were not alone, and that alien contact was not necessarily friendly. Is it still chasing us? That thought coursed through Betty and Barney's minds as they drove down the empty winding country road in New Hampshire's White Mountains. It was a September night in 1961, they hadn't seen a car for miles and a strange light in the sky seemed to be following them. According to a variety of reports given by the Hills, the alleged UFO sighting happened about 10:30 p.m. September 19, 1961. The Hills were driving back to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal, just south of Lancaster, New Hampshire. Betty claimed to have observed a bright light in the sky that moved from below the moon and the planet Jupiter upward to the west of the moon. Barney, an avid plane watcher and World War II veteran, was sure they had nothing to worry about. It's just a satellite, he assured Betty. It probably went off course. While Barney navigated U.S. Route 3, Betty reasoned she was observing a falling star, only it moved upward. The light seemed to move with the car as Barney steered down the curving mountain road. The light zigged and zagged, ducking past the moon and behind trees and mountain ridges, only to reappear moments later. Sometimes it seemed to move toward them in a game of cat and mouse. It had to be an illusion, they thought. Maybe the car's movement made it seem like the light, too, was moving. Because it moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter, Betty urged Barney to stop the car for a closer look, as well as to walk their dog, delsey Barney stopped at a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Betty, looking through binoculars, observed an odd-shaped craft flashing multicolored lights travel across the face of the moon. Because her sister had several years earlier said she had seen a flying saucer, Betty thought it might be what she was observing. Barney, she told her husband, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being completely ridiculous. Through binoculars, Barney observed what he reasoned was a commercial airliner traveling toward Vermont on its way to Montreal. However, he soon changed his mind because, without looking as if it had turned, the aircraft rapidly descended in his direction. This observation caused Barney to realize this object that was a plane was not a plane. He knew Betty was right. Barney had an IQ of 140, noted Fuller in his book. Barney was also a pragmatic man, who wouldn't give flying saucers a second thought, remembered his niece Kathleen Martin in her work, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill Experience. The night was too quiet for a helicopter, a commercial plane, or even military jet with a hotshot pilot. He didn't want to spook Betty, but he was becoming concerned. What was this light, and why was it toying with them? They quickly returned to the car and drove toward Franconia Notch, a narrow, mountainous stretch of the road. The Hills said they continued driving on the isolated road, moving very slowly through Franconia Notch in order to observe the object as it came even closer. At one point, the object passed above a restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain and came out near the Old Man of the Mountain. Betty testified that it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff profile, which was 40 feet long, and that it seemed to be rotating. The couple watched as the silent, illuminated craft moved erratically and bounced back and forth in the night sky. About 70 miles past the diner, the object hovered just above the treetops, approximately 100 feet above them. About one mile south of Indian Head, they said. The object rapidly descended toward their vehicle, causing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. The huge, silent craft hovered about 80 to 100 feet above the hill's 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air and filled the entire field of view in the windshield. Barney abruptly stopped the car, keeping the engine running. He shoved a handgun he'd hidden beneath his seat into his pocket and rushed into a dark field, leaving Betty in the car. What he saw was as big as a jet, but as round and flat as a pancake. My God, what is this thing, he recalled thinking. This, this can't be real. Using the binoculars, Barney claimed to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid figures behind rows of windows. Gray, uniformed beings seemed to look right at him, Barney recalled. He tried to lift his hand to his pistol, but somehow couldn't. A voice told him not to put down his binoculars. In unison, all but one figure moved to what appeared to be a panel on the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front portion of the craft. The one remaining figure continued to look at Barney, and communicated a message telling him to stay where you are and keep looking. Barney had a recollection of observing the humanoid forms wearing glossy black uniforms and black caps. Red lights on what appeared to be bat-wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. The silent craft approached to what Barney estimated was within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away from him. On October 21, 1961, Barney reported to National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, Investigator Walter Webb, that the beings were somehow not human. Barney tore the binoculars away from his eyes and ran back to his car. He had a startling thought. We're about to be captured. Yelling hysterically, he ran back to the car and barreled down the road. He saw the object again shift its location to directly above the vehicle. He drove away at high speeds, telling Betty to look for the object. She rolled down the window and looked up. Almost immediately, the Hills heard a rhythmic series of beeping or buzzing sounds, which they said seemed to bounce off the trunk of their car. The car vibrated, and a tingling sensation passed through the Hills' bodies. The Hills said that then they experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled. A second series of beeping or buzzing sounds returned the couple to full consciousness. They found that they had traveled nearly 35 miles south, but had only vague spotty memories of this section of road. They recalled making a sudden, sharp, unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the road. When they finally got home to Portsmouth at dawn, they were far from relieved. There were two hours of the drive that neither one of them could remember. The Hills asserted they had some odd sensations and impulses they could not readily explain. Betty insisted their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of the house. Their watches stopped working and would never work again. Barney said that the leather strap for the binoculars was torn, though he could not recall it tearing. Barney's shoes were strangely scuffed on the top, and Betty's dress was ripped. They felt dirty. Barney says he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. They took long showers to remove possible contamination and each drew a picture of what they had observed. Perplexed, the Hills say they tried to reconstruct the chronology of events as they witnessed the UFO and drove home but immediately after they heard the buzzing sounds, their memories became incomplete and fragmented. After sleeping for a few hours, Betty awoke and placed the shoes and clothing she had worn during the drive into her closet, observing that the dress was torn at the hem, zipper, and lining. Later, when she retrieved the items from her closet, she noted a pinkish powder on her dress. She hung the dress on her clothesline and the pink powder blew away, but the dress was irreparably damaged. She threw it away but then changed her mind, retrieved the dress, and hung it in her closet. Over the years, five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analysis on the dress. There were shiny concentric circles on their car's trunk that had not been there the previous day. Betty and Barney experimented with them using a compass, noting that when they moved it close to the spots, the needle would whirl rapidly but when they moved it a few inches away from the shiny spots, it would drop down. On September 21st, Betty telephoned Pease Air Force Base to report their UFO encounter. Betty and Barney withheld most of the details of what they had witnessed because they feared being labeled crazy. The next day, on September 22nd, Major Paul W. Henderson telephoned the Hills for a more detailed interview. Henderson's report, dated September 26th, determined that the Hills had probably misidentified the planet Jupiter. The investigator concluded that the couple mistook the planet Jupiter for a UFO. This was later changed to optical condition, inversion, and insufficient data. He filed the report with Project Blue Book, the classified Department of Defense program for investigating UFOs. The Hills case was filed under insufficient data, a classification indicating one or more crucial pieces of evidence was missing. The Hills still wanted answers about what had happened to them. From her local library, Betty checked out a book about flying saucers by Donald Kehoe, a retired Marine Corps aviator and the co-founder of NICAP, the leading civilian UFO research group. On September 26th, Betty wrote to Kehoe who responded enthusiastically and invited them to tell their whole story. She related the full story, including the details about the humanoid figures that Barney had observed through binoculars. Betty wrote that she and Barney were considering hypnosis to help recall what had happened. Her letter was eventually passed on to Walter N. Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member. Webb spoke with the Hills for six straight hours. He met with the Hills on October 21, 1961. In the interview, the Hills related all they could remember of the UFO encounter. Barney stated he had developed a sort of mental block, and he suspected there were some portions of the event he did not wish to remember. He described in detail all he could remember about the craft and the appearance of these somehow-not-human figures aboard the craft. Webb stated, They were telling the truth and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observations where human judgment is involved. Things like exact time and length of visibility, apparent size of objects and occupants, and distance and height of objects. Yet what happened after the abduction is almost as astounding as the abduction itself. The event was having impacts on the hills and would not leave them. Betty and Barney finally felt that people were listening to and believing them. But with the sense of validation came graphic nightmares. The interviews seemed to unearth unconscious memories for Betty. In one dream, the aliens led her and Barney up a ramp into a metallic-looking craft. Once inside, they were taken to separate rooms and subjected to experiments by two aliens, the leader and the examiner. When the examiner inserted a needle into her navel, Betty felt excruciating pain, but only momentarily. The leader waved his hand over her eyes and the pain disappeared. Sessions with a Boston psychiatrist brought up more strange recollections. Betty and Barney sought help for their anxiety and insomnia, and insight into the two-hour stretch of time missing from their memories from Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known expert in hypnosis. More on those sessions in a moment. While they were making progress on understanding their experience, subsequent dreams and a pervasive anxiety, especially on the part of Barney, pointed to something unusual having occurred. And they still had lingering questions about that missing time. What about that? What had occurred? It was something that could not quite remember, at least not yet. Ten days after the alleged UFO encounter, Betty began having a series of vivid dreams. They continued for five successive nights. Never in her memory had she recalled dreams in such detail and intensity, but they stopped abruptly after five nights and never returned. They occupied her thoughts during the day. When she mentioned them to Barney, he was sympathetic, but not too concerned, and the matter was dropped. Betty did not mention them to Barney again. In November 1961, Betty began writing down the details of her dreams. In one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness but struggled to regain it. Then she realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night, and of seeing Barney walking behind her, though when she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men stood about five feet to five feet four inches tall, and wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human, with black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. In the dreams, Betty, Barney, and the men walked up a ramp into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance. Once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. She protested and was told by a man she called The Leader that if she and Barney were examined together it would take much longer to conduct the exams. She and Barney were then taken to separate rooms. Betty then dreamt that a new man similar to the others entered to conduct her exam with the leader. Betty called this new man the examiner and said he had a pleasant, calm manner. Though the leader and the examiner spoke to her in English, the examiner's command of the language seemed imperfect and she had difficulty understanding him. The examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. He seated her on a chair, and a bright light was shown on her. The man cut off a lock of Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. He then tested her nervous system and he thrust the needle into her navel which caused Betty agonizing pain whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. The examiner left the room and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked from where he came and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. In Betty's dream account, the men began escorting the hills from the ship when a disagreement broke out. The leader then informed Betty that she could not keep the book, stating that they had decided that the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. She and Barney were taken to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. They did so then resumed their drive. On November 23, 1962, the Hills attended a meeting at the parsonage of their church where there was a guest speaker, Captain Ben H. Sweat, of the United States Air Force. Having had an interest in hypnosis, the Hills approached Sweat privately and related their strange encounter. Sweat was particularly interested in the missing time of the Hills account. The Hills asked if he would hypnotize them to recover their memories, but Sweat declined and cautioned them against going to an amateur hypnotist such as himself. On September 7, 1963, Captain Sweat returned and gave a formal lecture on hypnosis to a meeting at the Unitarian Church. After the lecture, the Hills told him that Barney was going to a psychiatrist, a Mr. Stevens, whom he liked and trusted. Captain Sweat suggested Barney ask Stevens about the use of hypnosis in his case. When Barney next met with Stevens, he asked about hypnosis, and Stevens referred the Hills to Benjamin Simon of Boston. The Hills didn't go public with their story until 1963, and even then, they kept it local. They shared their account with a small church group. On November the 3rd, 1963, the Hills spoke before an amateur UFO study group, the Two-State UFO Study Group in Quincy Center, Massachusetts. But John Luttrell, a columnist from the Boston Herald Traveler, got wind of the sensational tale. With an audio tape from the Two-State lecture and notes from UFO investigators as sources, Luttrell published a column on the Hills that got nationwide attention. When United Press International picked up Luttrell's column, it went global. The Hills first met Dr. Benjamin Simon on December the 14th, 1963. Early in their discussion, Simon determined the UFO encounter was causing Barney far more worry and anxiety than he was willing to admit. Though Simon dismissed the popular extraterrestrial hypothesis as impossible, it seemed obvious to him that the hills genuinely thought they had witnessed a UFO with human-like occupants. Simon hoped to uncover more about the experience through hypnosis. Simon began hypnotizing the hills on January the 4, 1964. He hypnotized Betty and Barney several times each, and the sessions lasted until June the 6, 1964. Simon conducted the sessions on Barney and Betty separately so they could not overhear one another's recollections. Barney's Session Simon hypnotized Barney first. His recall of witnessing non-human figures was quite emotional, punctuated with expressions of fear, emotional outbursts, and incredulity. Barney said that due to his fear, he kept his eyes closed for much of the abduction and physical examination. Based on these early responses, Simon told Barney that he would not remember the hypnosis sessions until he was certain he could remember them without being further traumatized. Under hypnosis, as was consistent with his conscious recall, Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. He eventually sighted six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled, and three of the men approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them. He was still anxious, however, and he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. While hypnotized, Barney said, I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. Barney's recollections were generally similar to Betty's, except with fewer details and more emotional outbursts. Oh, those eyes, he yelled, recalling the alien's cold stare, they're there in my brain. Barney described the beings as generally similar to Betty's hypnotic-not-dream recollection. The beings often stared into his eyes said Barney with a terrifying mesmerizing effect under hypnosis the eyes of the abductors in particular caused fear and anxiety Barney related in his second session I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine and I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body they're just there they're just up close to me pressing against my eyes Barney related that he and Betty were taken onto the disc-shaped craft where they were separated. He was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small rectangular exam table. Barney's narrative of the exam was fragmented. He continued to keep his eyes closed for most of the exam. A cup-like device was placed over his genitals. Barney thought that a sperm sample had been taken. The men scraped his skin and peered in his ears and mouth. A tube or cylinder was inserted into his anus and quickly removed. Someone felt his spine and seemed to be counting his vertebrae. While Betty reported a conversation with the leader in English, Barney said that he heard them speaking in a mumbling language he did not understand. Betty also mentioned this detail. The few times they communicated with him, Barney said it seemed to be thought transference. At that time, he was unfamiliar with the word telepathy. Both Betty and Barney stated that they had not observed the beings' mouths moving when they communicated in English with them. He recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to his car. In a daze, he watched the ship leave. Barney remembered a light appearing on the road, and he said, Oh, no, not again. He recalled Betty's speculation that the light might have been the moon, though the moon had set several hours earlier. He also stated he attempted to produce the code-like buzzing sounds which seemed to strike the car's trunk a second time by driving from side to side and stopping and starting the vehicle. His attempt was unsuccessful. Betty's Sessions Under hypnosis, Betty's account was similar to her five dreams about the UFO abduction with some notable differences mainly pertaining to her capture and release. Also, the technology on the craft was different, the short men differed significantly in physical appearance and the sequential order of the abduction differed. Barney's and Betty's memories in hypnotic regression were, however, consistent with one another. Betty exhibited considerable emotional distress when recounting her capture and examination. Dr. Simon ended one session early because tears were flowing down her cheeks. During her five months of hypnotherapy, Simon gave Betty the post-hypnotic suggestion that she could sketch a copy of the star map, which she later described as a three-dimensional projection similar to a hologram. Though the map she saw had many stars, she drew only those that stood out in her memory. Her map consisted of twelve prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinctive triangle. She said she was told the stars connected by solid lines formed trade routes, whereas dash lines were to less traveled stars. So what were Dr. Simon's conclusions? After the hypnosis sessions, Simon speculated that Barney's recollection of the UFO encounter was possibly a fantasy inspired by Betty's dreams. Simon thought it was the most reasonable and consistent explanation. Barney rejected this idea, noting that while their memories were consistent in some regards, there were also portions of both their narratives that were unique to each other. Barney was now ready to accept that they had been abducted by the occupants of a UFO, though he never embraced it as fully as Betty did. Though the Hills and Simon disagreed about the cause of their distress, they all agreed that the hypnosis sessions were effective. The Hills were no longer tormented by abduction anxiety. When the series of hypnosis sessions were complete, Simon wrote an article about the Hills for the journal Psychiatric Opinion, explaining his conclusion that the case was a singular psychological aberration. While hypnotherapy was already well established and in use at the time of the Hills case, it increased awareness and exponential use of the tool in psychotherapy, the criminal justice system, and later, in exploration of alleged past life regressions. Not everyone was sympathetic to the Hill's experience. Many discounted the account altogether, and later actions by Betty and the UFO community generated doubts of her credibility, at least in later years. Psychiatrists later suggested the supposed abduction was a hallucination brought on by the stress of being an interracial couple in early 1960s America. Betty discounted this suggestion, noting her relationship with Barney was happy and their interracial marriage caused no notable problems with their friends or family. As noted in The Interrupted Journey, Simon thought the Hills' marital status had nothing to do with the UFO encounter. Jim McDonald, a resident of the area in which the Hills claimed to have been abducted, produced a detailed analysis of their journey, which concluded... The episode was provoked by their misperceiving an aircraft warning beacon on Cannon Mountain as a UFO. McDonald noted that from the road the Hills took, the beacon appears and disappears at exactly the same time the Hills described the UFO as appearing and disappearing. The remainder of the experience is ascribed to stress, sleep deprivation, and false memories recovered under hypnosis. After reading McDonald's recreation, UFO expert and skeptical inquirer columnist Robert Schaefer wrote the hills are the poster children for not driving when sleep-deprived. He also noted, I was present at the National UFO Conference in New York City in 1980, at which Betty presented some of the UFO photos she had taken. She showed what must have been far more than 200 slides, mostly of blips, blurs, and blobs against a dark background. These were supposed to be UFOs coming in close, chasing a car, landing, etc. After her talk had exceeded about twice its allotted time, Betty was literally jeered off the stage by what had been at first a sympathetic audience. This incident, witnessed by many of UFOlogy's leaders and top activists, removed any lingering doubts about Betty's credibility. She had none, he wrote. In 1995, Betty Hill wrote a self-published book, A Common Sense Approach to UFOs. It's filled with delusional stories such as seeing entire squadrons of UFOs in flight and a truck levitating above the freeway, he concluded. Schaefer later wrote that as late as 1977, Betty Hill would go on UFO vigils at least three times a week. One evening, she was joined by UFO enthusiast John Oswald. When asked about Betty's continuing UFO observations, Oswald stated, She is not really seeing UFOs, but she's calling them that. On the night they went out together, Oswald observed, Mrs. Hill was unable to distinguish between a landed UFO and a streetlight. In his 1990 article, Entirely Unpredisposed, Martin Kottmeyer suggested Barney's memories revealed under hypnosis might have been influenced by an episode of the science fiction television show The Outer Limits, titled The Bolero Shield which was broadcast about two weeks before Barney's first hypnotic session. The episode featured an extraterrestrial with large eyes who says, In all the universes, in all the unities beyond the universes, all who have eyes have eyes that speak. The report from the regression featured a scenario that was, in some respects, similar to the television show. In part, Kottmeyer wrote, Wraparound eyes are an extreme rarity in science fiction films. I know of only one instance. They appeared on The Alien of an episode of an old TV series, The Outer Limits, titled The Bolero Shield. A person familiar with Barney's sketch in The Interrupted Journey and the sketch done in collaboration with artist David Baker will find a déjà vu creeping up his spine when seeing this episode. The resemblance is much aided by an absence of ears, hair and nose on both aliens. Could it be by chance? Consider this, Barney first described and drew the wraparound eyes during the hypnosis session dated 22 February 1964. The Bolero shield was first broadcast on 10 February 1964. Only 12 days separate the two instances. If the identification is admitted, the commonness of wraparound eyes in the abduction literature falls to cultural forces. When a different researcher asked Betty about The Outer Limits, she insisted she had never heard of it. Kottmeyer also pointed out that some motifs in the Hill's account were present in the 1953 film Invaders from Mars. A careful analysis of Barney's description of the non-human entities he observed reveals significant similarities between the Bifrost Man in the film and Barney's descriptive details also take into account Barney's conscious, continuous recall of the entities he observed on the hovering craft. They were dressed in black, shiny uniforms and were somehow not human. All of these accounts by Barney bear a striking resemblance to the film. Both Barney and Betty continue to believe and defend their story up to Barney's death from a stroke on February 25, 1969, at age 46, and Betty's own death from cancer on October 17, 2004, at age 85, never having remarried. And even today, it stands as a watershed moment in alien abduction cases. Before the Hill story, alien encounters were friendly, according to Christopher Bader, a professor of sociology at California's Chapman University. Some aliens supposedly even lived on Earth and commuted back on weekends. But once the Hill story became better known, abduction accounts shared certain characteristics, such as medical examinations and missing time. Aliens with large heads and big eyes, dubbed greys in UFO circles, became classic sci-fi staples in personal accounts and pop culture, close encounters of the third kind, and shows like The X-Files. The Hill's story saw a rapid increase of alien abduction accounts that continue to this day. It also removed barriers to actively reporting such accounts. The Hill's, and those that came after, helped pave the way for a new understanding of human experience. Richard J. McNally, a Harvard psychologist, puts it this way, The alien abduction phenomenon, in my opinion, shows how sincere, non-psychotic individuals can develop beliefs about and false memories of incredible experiences that never happened. Experts of all stripes have tried to explain why intelligent, otherwise mentally stable people come forward with these experiences. Many psychologists say sleep paralysis and hallucinations play a role. Leading questions during hypnosis, the main way most abductees unlock their stories, could also be a factor. Those who report abduction might also see the world a little differently. According to research, one of the strongest predictors of false recall is a vivid imagination. This group scores high in magical ideation and is more likely to believe in ghosts and tarot readings, according to McNally. Some believe the Hill story was simply a myth in the making, with these supernatural meetings vulnerable protagonists and otherworldly journeys that are often the hallmarks of legend. Many point to the stress of being an interracial couple living in a predominantly white state and a turbulent era. The year of their hypnosis, 1964, was marked by Cold War tensions and civil rights unrest with numerous urban riots erupting that summer. You have a biracial couple at a time where, obviously, it was not easy to be a biracial couple, says Professor Bader. Look what those aliens were, a mixture of black and white. I I find that meaningful. Abductee stories depend on first-hand accounts, the most vulnerable form of evidence. Memories can be distorted by stress or distraction, or even manufactured. When a false memory is in place, psychologists say the brain works to fill in the details. Psychologist Michael Shermer points to patternicity, the tendency to see patterns even when none exist, helping us to see faces in clouds, or assume that one event caused another. Past experience also shapes human perception. Barney, a World War II veteran, thought the head gray looked like Hitler and seemed menacing. Betty, meanwhile, who had been excited to see the aliens, bantered with the affable gray who performed her medical examination. That alien even agreed to give her a book to bring to Earth with her she said, though other crew members would later overrule that decision. In this way, alien abduction and encounter stories have helped psychologists understand the human brain, its defects, and the weaknesses inherent in memory and first-hand accounts, according to Christopher French, a psychologist specializing in human experience related to the paranormal. What we see and hear, especially under less-than-ideal observational conditions, can be heavily influenced by our prior beliefs and expectations. French wrote in The Guardian. NICAP's scientific advisor cross-examined the couple and found their account credible. The Air Force's Project Blue Book would ultimately dismiss the story, determining the unexplained craft could be explained by natural causes, hinting that the couple hadn't seen a spacecraft at all, but rather only the planet Jupiter. For his part, psychiatrist Simon never felt the Hills had made up their story. He concluded Betty had dreamed the abduction, and Barney had absorbed her story, especially since many of the most vivid details matched descriptions of dreams Betty had jotted down after the event. I believe implicitly in the honesty of these people, he said in a 1970s radio program. Of course, another explanation is always possible. The abduction actually occurred. The Hills stuck by their story despite years of skeptics and detractors. Like many abductees, the couple never felt false memory or sleep paralysis explain what they experienced. Betty became a known voice in UFO research and claimed she was visited multiple times in the decades to follow. The Hills eventually went back to their regular lives. They were willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounter with friends, family, and the occasional UFO researcher but The Hills apparently made no effort to seek publicity. In 1966, writer John G. Fuller secured the cooperation of The Hills and Dr. Simon and wrote the book The Interrupted Journey about the case. The book included a copy of Betty's sketch of the star map. The book was a quick success and went through several printings. Neither Betty nor Barney believed in aliens or UFOs, their niece Kathleen Martin later told a British TV interviewer. They didn't seem like alien abductee types, but of course, that's exactly what they allegedly were. The details of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, a flying saucer, aliens with big, penetrating eyes, and mysterious physical examinations, have inspired countless TV episodes, podcasts, books, and films. Estelle Parsons and James Earl Jones starred as Betty and Barney in the 1975 TV movie The UFO Incident. Their descriptions of humanoid aliens crept into sci-fi classics like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The X-Files. The Hills never sought fame, they only wanted to understand what had happened, but their legacy lives on, particularly in the rugged corner of New Hampshire where it all began. A gas station on U.S. Route 3 moonlights as an alien abduction museum, displaying newspaper clippings and photos about the couple, and just up the road, The New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources put up a marker commemorating the site of their mysterious encounter. Though the story of Betty and Barney Hill was not the first tale of alien abduction, theirs was the most well-documented and feasibly legitimate. The incident would also become the first ever widely publicized alien abduction account and shape how stories like it were told and understood. From then up to our present day, it still ranks as the most impactful and important alien abduction account ever. Of course, debate continues as to whether the husband and wife were liars, idealists, crackpots, or simply sleep-deprived people who later recovered seriously scrambled memories. What remains is this. The Hills were steadfastly certain they had experienced an alien abduction. They were highly believable individuals who were rock solid in their community. A World War II veteran and government employee and a conscientious social worker. Whether the abduction took place or not, there is, after all, no real proof as such. We can be certain of this. They believed it happened. And that alone may be enough to give any of us pause, driving late at night on a lonely isolated road when we see an unusual light in the evening sky. Postscript Betty Hill's Star Map In 1968, Marjorie Fish of Oak Harbor, Ohio, read Fuller's book, Interrupted Journey. Fish was an elementary school teacher and amateur astronomer. Intrigued by the star map, Fish wondered if it might be deciphered to determine which star system the UFO came from. To get more information about the map, she decided to visit Betty Hill in the summer of 1969. Here is Miss Fish's account of that meeting. On August 4, 1969, Betty Hill discussed the star map with me. Betty explained that she drew the map in 1964 under post hypnotic suggestion it was to be drawn only if she could remember it accurately and she was not to pay attention to what she was drawing which i guess puts it in the realm of automatic drawing this is a way of getting at repressed or forgotten material and can result in unusual accuracy she made two erasures showing her conscious mind took control part of the time assuming that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent earth's sun fish constructed a three-dimensional model using thread and beads basing stellar distances on those published in the 1969 Glee's Star Catalog of nearby sun-like stars deemed to have characteristics that could support life such as that found on Earth. Studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the hill map was from the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli, about 39 light-years from Earth. The map was eventually sent to Terence Dickinson, editor of the magazine Astronomy. Dickinson did not endorse Fish's conclusions, but for the first time in the journal's history, Astronomy invited comments and debate on a UFO report, starting with an opening article in the December 1974 issue. It probably cost him his job, as he was gone from the magazine a few months later. Astronomy was just a year and a half old at the time, and the story, in all likelihood, affected the fledgling magazine's credibility. For about a year afterward, the Opinions page of Astronomy carried arguments for and against Fish's star map. Notable was an argument made by scientific astronomer Carl Sagan, arguing the star map was little more than a random alignment of chance points. In an episode of Cosmos in 1980, Sagan demonstrated that without the lines drawn in the maps, the Hill map bore no resemblance to the real-life map. In contrast, those more favorable to the map, such as statistician David Saunders, disagreed. Saunders claimed a match among 16 stars of the specific spectral type among the 1,000 stars nearest the sun is at least a 1,000 to 1 against. In the early 1990s, the European High Precision Parallax Collecting Satellite Mission, which measured the distances to more than 100,000 stars around the Sun more accurately than ever before, showed that some of the stars in Fish's interpretation of the map were in fact much farther away than previously thought. Other research revealed some stars counted by Fish as likely to host life would have had to be excluded by her own criteria while some other stars, which had been discounted by Fish, have been recognized as potential places for life. Results such as these led Fish herself to reject her hypothesis in a 2013 public statement. Yankee Skeptic wrote, Later, after newer data was compiled, she determined that the binary stars within the pattern were too close together to support life. So, as a true skeptic, she issued a statement that she now felt that the correlation was unlikely. Which brings us back to Betty Hill's original map. She always maintained she drew what she witnessed to the best of her recollection while under hypnotic regression. The fact it no longer is supported by Fish's model and hypothesis does not make Betty's map any more or less valid and truthful. It just makes it as it originally was unverifiable. Finally Please take some time to look at the resources section in the show notes. We've put a link there to one of Barney Hill's actual hypnosis sessions. And we also have several links for various books on the subject of Barney and Betty Hill's alien abduction. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Well, the episode quiz comes directly from our Facebook page. If you haven't had a chance to go out, please do and take a look at the Facebook page. You can find it by searching for The Paranormal Factor Podcast on Facebook. Every Monday, we have Monster Monday, where we highlight a monster for you. Tuesday, that's our quiz day, but you'll have to wait for the episode to get the answer. Wednesday, we highlight a paranormal book or film. Thursday, we try to give you some current paranormal news from out there in the world. So stop by and give it a look. If you get the chance the question for this episode is a vampire cannot cross over this is it a a grave b a wooden fence c a broken mirror or d running water once again a vampire cannot cross over this is it a grave a wooden fence A broken mirror or running water? And the answer is D, running water. Running water is correct. In European folklore, water was seen as a barrier that prevented the crossing of unholy beings. However, running water was generally the strongest in this sense. Since running water is much cleaner and less likely to hold diseases, it was considered holy. Vampires are the polar opposite of this. The purity of the water repels them. Like garlic and salt, water is one of the common substances widely held to have special powers. Among other things, this means it can be used to protect against various monsters and things that go bump in the night. Symbolically, it makes sense for water to work as a barrier against vampires. Water is the source of life and so naturally works against the undead, right? On a practical level, it can also deter predatory creatures that hunt by smell as water can misdirect or dampen scent trails. There are some variations as to what form of water will work. Almost always the water must be moving. Rain or the ocean eh, may or may not qualify, but rivers always do. The origin of this may be that Jesus was baptized in a river, but undoubtedly helping the folklore is that running water is safer to live near than stagnant water stagnant water doesn't wash away harmful content it's more inviting to mosquitoes and other pests promotes mold smells much worse than fresh water this is also the reason vampires tend to hang out in swamps and mires because the water is stagnant and often disease ridden another theory holds that running water has religious significance for vampires regardless of their perceived mythical powers vampires are considered unclean and diseased as a result vampires avoid holy grounds. Running water was considered clean by vampires. Consecrated places were seen by vampires as unsafe. Another theory holds that clean running water was corrosive to vampires. So, the next time you find yourself being pursued by the vampiric undead, putting yourself across some running water might be all it takes to save your neck. Literally. Well, in our next episode of the Paranormal Factor podcast, we look into the legend of La Llorona, the weeping woman. Well known in Mexico and the Southwest, La Llorona is said to be a vengeful ghost who roams waterfront areas mourning her children whom she drowned. She's said to prey upon children taking them into the dark waters to die. So please join us next week for an intriguing look into the legend of La Llorona. And, of course, we'll have some actual encounters to share. You won't want to miss it. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave... If you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.